I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched some of our content so far and liked it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Professor Pierre de Foss. The professor teaches constitutional law at the University of Cape Town Law Faculty, where he serves as the head of the Department of Public Law and as the Claude Leon Foundation Chair in Constitutional Governance. He holds numerous degrees, like an LLB from Stellenbosch University and an LLM from Columbia University in New York. The professor also writes a blog on social and political issues from a constitutional law perspective, which is widely read and quoted, and is the co-editor of the book, South African Constitutional Law in Context. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Professor, we wanted to know, um, you uh, grew up as um, a gay man, a publicly gay man, you came out. Um, and, and in the era that you grew up, did you experience any clear forms of discrimination? Well, when I was growing up, I grew up in Polokwane, what used to be called Petersburg, which was, mm. uh, it was even more conservative than the rest of South Africa or reactionary. And the idea of coming out of the closet for being gay was preposterous. I mean, I didn't even admit to myself that I was gay when I was at school because mm. if I did and if I came out, I would probably have uh, faced serious consequences, in including being physically assaulted. Yes. So in that sense, I didn't face uh, discrimination because uh, I, I hid who I was. When I did come out um, in the early 90s, um, of course, I experienced a kind of, of um, subtle discrimination that uh, many Black South Africans are so uh, familiar with, where you just you're not included, there's a there's an office uh, braai and you're not asked to come along and so on. Mm -hmm. But luckily, mostly because I work at universities and it's it's been a good environment and the, the kind of uh, friends and family I have, uh, uh, in that context, I have not really um, experienced discrimination. Maybe the one <laughs> time when uh, the, it was a little bit uh, awkward was I went with my then partner, um, it was a ballet dancer. We went to the mall, the Tiger, Tiger Valley Mall, and we held hands. And there were a few people who shouted at us and, and uh, in, in disgust. What, um, what year was this? That was in the late in the nineteen late nineteen nineties. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's not it's not recently, but yeah. So yeah, but it's also not that, that long ago. Yeah. Now I I we all afterwards we sort of joked and said we didn't know whether they were shouting at us because one of us was white and the other black, or whether it was because we two men holding hands. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I just wanted to get some more clarity. What type of um, pressures or, or stigmas existed when you grew up that made it almost known to you at that point that if you were to come out or if you were to deny it even to yourself, that it would be a bad idea? Because you obviously had to know that some, some sort of stigma had to exist for you to know that it was a bad idea. So firstly, there was just prejudice in society. Um, okay. Uh, profoundly influenced by religious beliefs, uh, the, the, uh, especially in the Dutch from church, um, mm -hmm. where any kind of things that is not a, um, a marriage and procreation within the marriage is an abomination. Um, and of course, it was a criminal offense for two men to have sex. So you could be arrested and imprisoned um, if, you, if you had sex with another man until 19... Uh, 97, 8, 98, when the Constitutional Court declared that provision unconstitutional, it was still a mm. criminal offense. Wow. Okay. That's actually a lot later than I thought it was. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, I mean, this, like, if for some of us, at least, this has been an issue that's completely been, I don't want to say eradicated because the prejudice still very much exists, but in terms of a legal environment, um, this, this has been uh, demolished in a lot of countries, um, which is a very positive thing. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't still exist. I mean, we have um, gay rights issues in countries like Poland and Russia, where the government actually passes so-called anti-gay laws. What's your opinion on that? Yes, so obviously in, um, in some parts of the world that, uh, that uh, in Europe and so on and many other places, um, the government often um, passes legislation or makes statements, anti-LGBTQ um, statements, um, 
Sometimes it is because the, the population share that prejudice. Sometimes the government exploits this um, to try and uh, legitimize themselves and protect themselves. So you get, uh, you get a kind of enemy and then you wave the flag against that enemy. So I think, I mean, I don't know enough about Poland and Russia to really say, but I think one possibility is that the governments of the day is exploiting this to, to build up nationalistic fervor, mm. uh, having an enemy, because if there's an enemy, then everybody uh, goes together, as we say in Afrikaans, and they come together. And that's probably um, uh, something like that that is happening in those countries. But it also shows that one cannot have a stereotype to say that it is uh, in some parts of the world, there's always acceptance uh, and uh, celebration of difference and in other parts not. It really depends from country to country, whether it's Europe or Africa or wherever. Mm. It's, it's an extremely interesting perspective that it's actually a form of a scapegoatism. It's like, it's okay, this is a group that we can easily target because they're normally a minority group uh, in terms of the way to consolidate power. Uh, you've mentioned, sorry, yes, you wanted to respond to that? No, I wanted to say, I think in South Africa, um, xenophobia is that scapegoating. Right. I mean, it does mean people not, do not really believe that there's a problem with foreigners, but it is used and exploited by the politicians to try and justify their own failures or hide their own failures. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's also really important. It's it's a good um, analogy to to couple to to connect those two rather. Um, you've mentioned uh, the Dutch Reformed Church in 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 uh, when you were growing up as a form of discrimination specifically against gay people. Um, what's your response to those that say that gay rights infringe on others' freedom of choice or religious beliefs, and that it's to force a preacher to officiate a gay wedding is perhaps like saying you know to force a Christian preacher to officiate a, a Muslim wedding? Do gay rights in re, like infringe on um, on religious freedom of religion? Yes, so rights always limit other people's choices. Okay. So my, my right to life limits your choice to take a gun and kill me. Mm. And so the same is with the way uh, where it comes to discrimination. In our law, the, the court respects both religious rights and uh, prohibits discrimination. And they do that in the following way. They say, you, you cannot be forced as a priest, for example, to officiate a wedding, a same-sex wedding, if it's against your religion. You cannot be forced to believe that it is fine um, for uh, people uh, not to be discriminated against. Your right to believe that discrimination is God-given is protected. And your right to say so and to practice it in your church or your religious institution is also protected. What is not protected is your right to use this religion in the public sphere to discriminate against somebody um, in the ordinary course of life. So if you run a business, you cannot discriminate by not appointing gays or lesbians. Um, if you have a guest house, you cannot prohibit same-sex couples from going there because it's against your religion, because that is not directly your religion. Your religious practices remain protected and they will remain protected. So I think that the clash is more imagined than real um, in the way at least our courts imagine it. That's 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 a interesting perspective because you'd think that a church would then almost be like a type of a, a um, I don't want to I don't want to base this at all but like would be a type of a, a private business where they have their right to do business as they wish they conduct to but at the same time private businesses like bakeries and so on we have a couple of those examples internationally um, do not have the right to discriminate there so would you yeah. say the churches there get special preferences. Yes, because there's a, the right to freedom of religion gives churches and other religious institutions, mosques, uh, shuls, whatever, give them um, a special rights in a way. Um, uh, and so uh, that is different from a business, um, but not necessarily always. It has to be the, the, the church's activities that is directly linked to religious uh, worship. So there was a case, for example, an interesting case, where um, an organist and music teacher at the Moraleta Park in Hekerk, you might be familiar with that, mm -hmm. uh, was fired because they discovered he was gay. And the court said this was discrimination because being a musician uh, um, and a music teacher is yeah. not a religious activity, so that is not protected. If he was the minister, 
it would have been fine to fire him, but not the organist, because the organist um, is basically, if you like the gardener or the, um, the administrator, whatever, it's not a religious task, so you can not discriminate and justify it through your religious beliefs. It is it is a bit of a, a fine line to walk in that regard, and and the way that the law enacts that is actually quite specific, and and, and tries to in, ensure people's religious freedom at the same time also people's individual freedom as working people. Um, I wanted to pivot that to say that pivot in the way that you know as churches uh, sometimes create an environment, um, and I don't want to bash on churches because I know there's a lot of very inclusive churches, but the, uh, there is a possibility that certain communities um, governed by certain uh, groups or principles ideals tend to like gather into a specific group and then that group pushes for more independence within their group. Um, and this is loosely uh, connected to uh, the situation we currently have where a lot of micronations either or connections, parts of nations are trying to look to more independence within their own environment, like Brittany in France and Catalonia in uh, Spain. And of course, the Cape in South Africa. There's a growing succession, succession movement, secession movement rather, uh, from the rest of South Africa. What's your opinion there in terms of the legality of a secession movement from, for example, the Western and like Northern Cape to the rest of the um, yeah. of the country? Okay, so firstly, whether it's a growing movement, I'm not sure there's uh, evidence for that, mm. um, but um, it's neither here nor there. Um, I know the people who are fervent uh, supporters of, of the independence of the Cape gets very cross with me because they don't like the law and the facts. But the fact is that legally, there's no provision in the South African constitution to allow for secession of one part of the country from another. Hmm. Uh, people who advocate uh, secession, independence, whatever you want to call it, refer to section, I forgot it now, 200 and something, which says that it is possible for parliament to accept um, and manage past legislation that would uh, allow separate groups to have some form of self-determination within the existing boundaries of South Africa. Okay, so that last so, part they're missing. It's not a right, it is for parliament to decide. They will never decide this because the parliament is not going to uh, make uh, such a, a law that is going to give people rights. Uh, in an independent or separate state, and it is within the boundaries of the country. So uh, the argument that you can have a referendum, the referendum is going to change everything. A referendum is not legally binding. Um, it has political impact, but it needs to have political impact, not in the Western Cape, but in the whole country, because it's right. the national parliament is going to decide on this. They're not going to decide on this in the next 50 or 100 years. Who knows mm. what happens in 500 years, but for the moment, that is not going to happen. Um, uh, we already have a, a quasi-federal system. So that's why we are, each province has uh, its own, um, its own uh, govern, government. Um, I think a far more um, realistic, uh, probably also not going to happen, but a far more realistic kind of approach would be to argue for more powers for provincial governments with the argument that it brings democracy close to the people. Mm. That might, you might be able to sell that in the long term, medium term, um, mm. but secession, it looks like white people wanting to run away from the rest of the country. So it's politically dead in the water. Okay, okay, yeah. No, that's that's a very, very straight and good answer, also legally bound in terms of what is allowed and what's made provision for. In other countries, there are there are lots of provisionary laws that allow certain groups or parts that merged in some part of history with the other to exist without it. But at one point in time, the Cape never really was succeeded from South Africa as a whole. Yes, and in the, the international law and these uh, all these examples is are uh, uh, where there's one. Uh, identifiable cultural, religious, ethnic group that's that wants its independence or separateness or, or self-determination. The Western Cape is not a, a, a place where it is u, um, uniform, uh, homogenous. There are many different cultures, races, languages, and so on. So it doesn't have the same, um, uh, it, it, it is not comparable to the examples of places where there is a much stronger acceptance of, uh, of self-determination of some sort. 
Okay. Okay. Um, you know, connecting it to the Western Cape, uh, you're definitely not known to be uh, one of Helen Zilla's best friends. Uh, <laughs> let me put it that way. Uh, what's your opinion of, I think it was a couple of years ago, she made a tweet about colonialism that got quite, uh, quite the attention. Um, mm -hmm. And those that say that there are positive aspects to colonialism. Yeah. Okay. So this is very, I find it fascinating for, on many levels. Firstly, mm -hmm. It's fascinating that someone who's a politician, he used to be quite astute. And I mean, under leadership, the DA actually grew quite significantly. It yeah. even started attracting a limited number of, of black voters to it, that she would be so uh, politically uh, and catastrophically dumb, <laughs> regardless mm -hmm. for, before we get to whether it's, uh, it's uh, defensible, it's just, it's, it's alienating so many people from her party. And so it's just politically, just because you think something is right. If you're a politician, you shouldn't always be stupid enough to say it out loud. Think it, but don't say it. So that's the mm. first. The second point is, I think the, the argument is so heated because it's an argument about how today we um, must see the past. And if the way we see the past reflects about how we understand the present. And so if you fight about colonialism, if you say that colonialism has, has something good uh, happened because of it, then it, it must be understood as an argument that we cannot say that uh, apartheid and, and colonialism and the, the uh, white minority rule and so on, that it was necessarily as bad as people say today. And therefore also, um, you know, we shouldn't worry too much about race, all these things. So, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think on that score, it is very difficult to justify this because you are really telling people who experienced, whose parents experienced and are still uh, living with the consequences of a system that was dehumanizing and oppressive. And, and you are trying to, to make an argument that says your experience was true, but uh, it, it's not, you don't, you're making too much of this. That, that's how I read it. That's, I think, emotionally how one, re one uh, many people read the, the, the tweet. Um, and so, you know, so if you want to use a really extreme example, you'd say you, you can't imagine anybody saying, well, um, Adolf Hitler was really quite a good person. The Nazis were at good elements because they built roads and so on. Yeah. It's a kind of mindset that is Im almost impossible to compute. Uh, like Helen Zeller wanted to say, I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying they were good things. It doesn't work like that in the sense that this, because this is such an emotional uh, issue. Mm. Yeah, so because of the connotation worth the issue, it's actually not fathomable that you could try and find the silver lining in something that was in general quite a dark cloud. Yes, so it, it sounds like um, it is always going to be read by the vast majority of South Africans as a kind of excuse or a minimization of the evils of apartheid and colonialism. Um, the details, you, you, you know, it's like fighting about whether there are sand on the beach when there's global warming and there's no water left. So yeah. It, it's completely, a, uh, it's not an argument one can really have um, constructively. Yeah, and there's, there are larger issues at hand, frankly. Yeah. Um, so, so changing that over to um, one of our current uh, crises in, 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 in the law sense, sorry, in, in the constitutional law, um, we currently have the Zondo Commission crisis as it stands. Uh, what do you think awaits uh, President uh, or former President Zuma if he continues to defy the commission? And why do you... Why do you think he, he tries, he's, he believes yeah. in trying to do this? Yes, so <laughs> this is an interesting case. Um, the question of what will happen next, I'm always nervous to say because uh, you know you can easily be wrong. Mm. What's going to happen, there's now going to be the commission going to the constitutional court. If the right. court accepts um, that they can hear the case that it shouldn't be a lower court, they're going to almost certainly find him in contempt of court because he actually stated that he deliberately uh, flouted the, the court order. Mm. Then the interesting thing is, are they going to give him a suspended jail sentence? 
there's an option. I don't know how quick this would happen, but if the Zondo Commission is still going, they could give him an option of a jail sentence, suspended, unless he refuses to go back and testify. So that's one option. Um, Whether he will finally cave in if it comes to it, I really don't know. I saw somebody writing in the business day, I think, and said, Jacob Zuma always hold out and hold out until the last moment and then he gives in. I think this is slightly different. Um, And the reason for this is going to your second question. And that is, yeah, the purpose is not um, directly to not be prosecuted or whatever. Um, it It is a political, he's using legal arguments, very, very bad legal arguments, but he's using legal arguments to advance a political um, project. Okay. And the political project are all the people who hate Cyril Ramaphosa and all the people who want um, um, more access to the looting of funds in the state. And so um, what he's trying to do is he's trying to delegitimize the whole idea of state capture. Um, he's trying to um, uh, delegitimize the report that is going to come out because the report um, is likely not to be very complimentary towards him. And him going to testify unless he has earth shattering actual um, uh, uh, testimony that actually deals with the, uh, the claims and the evidence, the, the eyewitness testimony and so on of the other witnesses, is not going to help himself. And so, what he's trying to do, in my view at least, is trying to collapse the commission. Or if they cannot do that, he's trying to make sure that when the report comes out, he can say, I told you all along, it's a stitch up. There's no such thing as state capture. I was never implicated. The 42 people who identified the various ways in which I have been abusing my power and were corrupt uh, were all lying and so on and so on. Yeah. So so, um, the interesting thing for me is to see to what extent this is going to be successful. Um, at the time of he was first prosecuted for corruption, I think he was quite successful in convincing many people and many powerful institutions and organizations to go with that narrative that he's being a victim. Mm-hmm. I would, it, I'm very interested to see if the, the argument will get any traction now um, that he's no longer the president and that his credibility is uh, probably quite reduced because of the Guptas and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, pivoting that, not not connecting it to um, uh, President Zuma's trial specifically, but just more in general. Um, do you feel that the uh, South African judiciary plays a bit too much of a large role in our society, and that yeah. it's our reliance on it in terms of almost every case that we have politically, socially, or so that we try and take it to the judiciary um, to to solve it could perhaps you know come back to haunt us in the future. Uh, where interventionist courts, you know, hold mm. back a future government coalition or, or, or movement, perhaps. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's uh, in a way related to the Zuma matter, because right. if any court um, is, uh, is dependent on its power and authority on whether it's accepted, when he, whether the, the executive branches of, branch of government is going to, um, is going to enforce its decisions, respect its decisions, and the general public is going to go along or not going to make too much of a fuss because of the judgments that the courts have made. The courts have made quite many unpopular decisions, including um, uh, none of, um, declaring the death penalty unconstitutional in the early days and so on. Um, but what uh, the court now is faced is that it must be careful not to go too far. A a clever court is one who is um, going to always try and act in a principled manner, but not unaware that they have to be careful and not unnecessarily just storm in like a bull in a china shop and give orders um, because they are uh, one of the branches of government and they're not the branch with the most power. In the South African context, what makes this very difficult for the court, the constitutional court in the first 15 years did this very well. It was actually quite deferential in some cases when it came to vulnerable groups and 
social justice issues, it was quite gung-ho. So it, it was good in that sense. Now the court intervenes more in these political kind of disputes because the political system is not really working. Um, and the Zonder Commission has heard in the last few weeks about how parliament accountability is not working. So what happens? Every um, person who is upset about some political decision run to the court. He tells you run to the court. Uh, Jacob Zuma is not paying Kandla money, you run to the court. Um, you, you are being expelled from the DA, Patricia DeLille, you run to the court. So it is a way of using the courts in a way because the system which is supposed to so solve these problems are not working very well. The court is in a, between a rock and a hard place because Often the constitution, our constitution is extremely expansive. So it gives them a lot of power to intervene. Mm. Um, if they don't intervene, it might look like they are too scared to stand up for what is right. Um, but it is inevitable that it will be in, uh, entangled in political controversy uh, as has now happened with the order to compel Jacob Zuma to testify. Of course, inevitably, the people who lose a court case are the ones who are going to complain and say the judges are all biased, they corrupt, they this, they that. It's no different from any person who has been convicted of a criminal offense, they all say this. And so, uh, but, but it's not good in the sense if these kind of accusations, factless as they are, if they get traction, it is going to be very bad for the judiciary and for their ability to have their authority respected in society. Do you think there's prevalence for people that, you know, rush to the court to solve every uh, issue that they come across? Do you think that's based in this very popular opinion that we have one of the best constitutional laws in the world? It does help, of course, that our, uh, not only is the constitution um, uh, a very progressive constitution and a, a constitution that gives power to litigants. In many ways, it, it subjects um, every decision by the executive to judicial scrutiny on the basis of rationality. It applies Bill of Rights, the rights in the Bill of Rights. It says it also applies to private institutions, which is quite a radical thing. So there is that, yes. Um, but it's also the, the judges on the court. Um, uh, the constitutional court since its inception has been more progressive and more uh, uh, intellectually adventurous, I think, than most other constitutional courts. Um, they're not always as meticulous, but they are, they, they are really progressive. If you compare the South African constitutional court to the US Supreme Court, it is like the difference between, uh, yeah, it's like far, far right versus yeah. The left of center for South African court. Mm. So South African court is uh, most of the decisions it makes, the US Supreme Court will never make because it's far too conservative. And that that helps for people who want to go to court and have their rights vindicated. Yeah. Right. Uh, we, we, we recently spoke with uh, Professor Loretta Ferris, uh, who's also at UCT, um, and she made this uh, or made me understand this interesting perspective on law where. Basically, uh, the judiciary is there to interpret the law, um, which has been decided upon and voted for by the people um, to apply that to the various situ situations that it, um, is, it, it faces, basically, that the law is being applied to. And in this sense, the judiciary itself isn't actually as much of a um, group that decides what's right and wrong, but rather just interpreting as best they can the law that the people specifically vote on. Mm. Um, what exactly is your perspective? In I, I know the constitution obviously doesn't quite apply because that's obviously a fixed law that doesn't get changed a lot. But for the policies and the minor laws that get put in. Yes. So, so obviously the, the courts and the constitutional court, um, if it is not a bill of rights question, if it's not an allegation that your rights have been infringed, they far more deferential. And they will always say when they review decisions by the public protector or by the president or by a minister or municipality, it's not for us to say whether this decision is good or bad. This happened now with the COVID-19 lockdown regulations. Yeah. The court often said, we're not saying these regulations are good regulations or the best regulations. That's not our role. Our role is to just say, are these things rational? Is there a purpose for this? And is there a link between what the regulation says and the purpose? That's all we're doing. 
Um, so in that sense, yes, there is a limited role for the courts. I am more prone to think that the, there are more um, discretion involved that the lawyers want to pre, pre, that the lawyers want us to think, mm. because say every piece of legislation you you have to interpret it. Um, the meaning is sort of there, but there's always options for um, for different interpretations. Mm. And so who the judges are, that's why I'm saying that our court is progressive, the US court is conservative. It makes a difference because you interpret the text slightly differently. And in, in many cases, it can make a big difference. Some cases, the right-wing and left-wing judges will interpret it the same because the text is sort of very clear. In many cases, not so. So that's why it's actually quite important who is appointed to the constitutional court. Mm, yeah, very important in that regard. Uh, it's it's the, the the comparison that you've made between um, the US and and South Africa uh, frequently in, in in discussion around the constitution is something that's of particular interest to me because I have this um, feeling or perspective, you know, from a non law practicing individual. Um, that in the US, the public is quite focused on their constitutional rights and the amendments of the constitution. That's constantly being used in almost every argument and so on. And in South Africa's past, it's not really been the case. People don't know the constitutional, um, sorry, the constitution very well. So they don't use it as much in the arguments or they use it incorrectly, in which case they're very quickly put down by people that know what they're talking about. But it's been increasing. Do you feel like this is a trend due to um, social media and pop, uh, popular online uh, reference to the American system of referring to the constitution? or is it just the natural progression for people to, to start talking about the constitution when it comes to rights? Yeah, I, I think it's a complicated, uh, I'm not sure there's one answer for this because on the one hand, um, especially since the, the student uprising and protest from 2015 onwards, there's been a strong criticism of constitutionalism and the constitution as being uh, not, uh, as not being a decolonial constitution. So these sort of people who say constitution must fall. Mm. Uh, some of my fellow academics say that. So there is a movement to question the constitution in, and its legitimacy in some way. But I do think that people are getting used to the fact that they have rights. So I always joke and say in South Africa, maybe also in the US, people are very quick to claim rights. They are just very reluctant to concede the rights of other people and respect the rights of other people. So if we right. want our own rights, we want, don't want to give it for other people, um, which is basically a summary of the way Jacob Zuma <laughs> behaves towards yeah. the commission. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's that's quite interesting as well. I, I always thought it was more of a, a popular connection between what media people are influenced by being very USA-centric in comparison to our media. Yeah, I don't know. I think in the sense of the, in the popular media among the elites, the people who are journalists and so on, I think the US is so discredited that it would be embarrassing to refer to the US. Right. Uh, although indirectly, of course, a lot of the discourse, including some of the um, decolonial discourse is imported directly from America. Um, but, but people are a bit reluctant to to refer to the US as any kind of example, because it, I mean, a few a month ago, I would have told you that it's close to a failed state. It looks like it's come through. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. So um, changing that over to another very serious uh, political issue um, that's obviously being embroiled in constitutional law that we had in South Africa is, of course, the um, expropriation without compensation bill that's um, currently and has been discussed for quite a while. What's your opinion on the practicality and constitutionality of that bill? I'll first say on the constitutionality, the, the constitution says you cannot have um, deprivation of property uh, without paying comp just compensation and the just compensation you have to decide by looking at a, a list of factors. So in theory, it is possible to have a case where you're going to expropriate without paying any compensation if the, if the um, uh, property was not kept up by the owner, you know, some building in Hillbrow, whatever, or one of those situations, or you you got it in a, a piece of land from District 6 in a corrupt deal in 1965 or 1970, the, it's easy. So, the and the legislation really captures this. So I think the legislation is going to pass constitutional muster. 
it is not going to do what uh, the EFF is uh, proposing. That's also they uh, criticize the draft legislation because it is not allowing for expropriating ordinary property without paying compensation. It will have to be really exceptional circumstances. So if you have a farm, it's not going to be, that law doesn't allow for expropriation with comp comp without compensation or your house or whatever the case might be. So I read it almost like it's a little bit of a, it's a PR exercise by the Ramaphosa faction in the ANC right. because that must be seen to be doing something. Um, they know that land reform is really serious uh, and yeah. it needs to be speeded up. And so they do what politicians do. They pass a piece of legislation that is not really probably going to change that much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the popular fear, of course, is relating what's you know happening in our legal discussion at the moment with what happened in Zimbabwe, where, I mean, you said this isn't going to happen to farms, but back there, I'm, I'm sure that some people felt it also wasn't going to happen to their farms. And at the end of the day, a, a tons of farmers were exiled from the country and their land was simply taken. Um, and I mean, that has its entire history and context connected to it. But what do you feel about the, the fears that are being propagated from that example on the uh, farm owners and private pro property owners here in South Africa? Well, I, it, as you asked me earlier to predict the future, and I don't right, want to of course. do that. Yeah. What I will say is I'm always uncomfortable with the comparison between South Africa and Zimbabwe because there are huge differences between right. the two countries. Um, firstly, there's economic differences. South Africa is, is a much bigger economy, so there's much more at stake if you, if you crash the whole economy. Mm -hmm. Many, and for me, this is important because politicians act in self-interest. So many politicians will potentially be catastrophically affected if they haven't stolen enough money and took it abroad, if the economy completely crashes and the system crash. So yeah. it's a different dynamic than in, in Zimbabwe. Also, there is a relatively free media. Um, this is a relatively active civil society. Um, mm. We have a court system that is for the moment quite credible and is uh, quite uh, strong. So there are many differences. So of course, there's something can happen. The, the, um, a government can slowly, you know, like the story of the frog in the pot, you mm. turn up the heat until you are dead, but you didn't notice that you were boiling. So that is possible, but I'm not yet feeling warm <laughs> because of these things that I've told you, that there are countervailing forces it can change um, and we are in a difficult position now because it might change quickly if the economy actually collapse, whether because of COVID or from uh, ESCOM imploding and not being able to pay its, its, um, its loans, and then it will be, uh, then I would feel that they might be, uh, the stove might be on, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, for, so for the common person, the signals that we perhaps should be looking for in terms of what could actually realize the sphere, is it specifically the, the, per, uh, the performance of the economy or, or what else? At so, what point should people start making direct yeah. action to counteract this type of possibility? You know, this, one must always, um, you know, the, I think one of the things for the question you asked a little bit earlier about going to the court, one of the reasons also why people do that is because it's much easier than actually doing something yourself, mobilizing, right. uh, uh, you know, going out to the grassroots mobilization, whatever. I think whether it, there's a threat or not, I think it's important for people who believe in democracy to be involved in some way um, and, and to participate in the democracy. So I think people, I'm, I'm fearful that because there's so much cynicism and the system is not always working, that people will give up on it. That right. is an invitation for the populace to come in and to capture the system. So, mm. I'll say, so I think people should be participating in any way, um, but as long as, they, as the press is not muzzled, um, as long as civil society is not muzzled, and as long as the courts stay relatively independent and efficient, um, it's not going to be easy uh, for, for, for populist or demagogues or uh, non-anti-democratic forces to yeah. capture the whole system. Because even if they 
they might undermine it, but these countervailing forces. So I'm, I'm sort of a glass half full. I'm not saying people's things are perfect, um, but I think one must be a little bit careful not to have this Afro-pessimistic view that, oh, this is going to be the end of the world. Because factually, it doesn't look like we have the same kind of um, um, system and conditions than say another country like Myanmar or Zimbabwe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are good examples as well. So yeah, fight apathy, I think, is an important uh, element there. And go vote if you really feel passionate about something, be involved in the discussion. It's, it's all very, very practical examples. Yeah. Or you um, don't really have to vote. You can also take part in politics in other ways, you know? Okay. Uh, yeah. So whether it's marches or organizing yeah. your street committee here in, in Seapoint or whatever mm -hmm. you're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so James, over. Um, you have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I was under the impression that you recently called for 100% inheritance tax. Is that true? I didn't call for that. I made. Oh, okay. I suggested that, that that could be a possibility. Okay, what okay. I did say is, I think that um, people assume that inheritance is a normal, natural thing, and mm -hmm. people do not understand that inheritance is sort of a symptom of inequality and how inequality is perpetuated. Some of the inheritance has nothing to do with the law. I mean, I inherited from my parents the ability to, to go to a, a relatively good school because I'm white, to go to a university again because I'm white. Um, uh, my parents helped me to get a car when I started working, you know, all this is the kind of inheritance that the law doesn't touch. But when you die, you, your things go to other people. They didn't deserve this. They didn't work for it. They just put up with you and didn't kill you as their parent. <laughs> right. So, so I'm saying there's nothing uh, obviously just or ethical about inheritance. So mm. given that my actual proposal would be something like um, the, the above a certain threshold, there should be uh, there should be a, a punishing tax on inheritance. So, eighty mm. percent. If you have more than five million, everything above five million, you pay eighty percent tax. Mm. Um, so that makes it difficult for people who are really rich, um, especially if their wealth is in 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 property, whatever. There's, there's the example in France where. Not as uh, there was a uh, version of this kind of punitive property um, death tax, mm. where the public Picasso's um, uh, widow, she had all these paintings. They were worth hundreds of millions. Mm. She couldn't pay the tax on it, so she donated two thirds of that, so that the state can start a museum. Okay. <laughs> you see, so it's it's not it's not something that is crazy. It versions of this has been implemented at the moment. Um, it's been rolled back, but yeah. So so the, the two questions is practicality. I, I don't really have much to say about that. The other one is the question of, is it really an ethically justified thing to inherit uh, from your parents that kind of things that after they die? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Given, yeah that it, given that it helps to perpetuate inequality. Yeah, and given that we the inequality in South Africa is is structured uh, very much still along racial lines. There's, there's, a, there's a very traditional um, perspective uh, that makes an argument that it's almost very, uh, you know, traditional or, or, or classical, that people are very motivated to work towards building something up for their family, and then making sure that that family has something that puts them on a next tier. I know this, this relates to inequality, but, you know, puts mm -hmm. them on the next tier that they never have to struggle like they did as children. Mm -hmm. And that's a motivational force behind uh, inheritance. Uh, what do you say to this response that it kind of it's demotivating to people um, that now okay. don't have that ability? Okay, so I actually wrote something on my blog um, and did some research, and the 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 um, the evidence the evidence in the form of um, actual statistical um, analysis hmm. suggests that in countries where there's a very high uh, state tax. Um, the impact on the work ethic of the of the richest one percent 
Um, in one study, it said it had no impact. In the other study, it said it had a very small statistically insignificant impact. Hmm. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> right. um, but that's what the, the available studies um, say. Um, I think this is true because people work for many, I, I think people don't necessarily work uh, um, in that way. People work, if you have children, to provide for your children, so they mm. like, through university, all that. But you also work and make lots of money because you like money, because you like the status, because you like the adrenaline and the power. Mm. And so I think it's, at the very least, very simplistic. Um, convenient, but a simplistic argument, not necessarily backed up by the available statistical evidence. Right, right, right. I mean, there, there, there's, you know, there's, there's a perspective where um, if you have, if you're building, uh, almost want to say, uh, you know, part, part of a like a private empire, almost, you know, you're you're working very hard, and you think that, like, yes, my children's children will have this type of, you know, future there. You want it to mean something, and I think mm -hmm. that relates in the sense that people want tax to mean something. So they they're not, might not necessarily be against a wealth tax of a sort or an inheritance tax for that example, something that specifically targets inequality, but they want their money to mean something. So do you think people would be more willing to accept something like this and a wealth tax if they knew that their tax is going to not only help their children, but their country as a whole? In that, in that sense, they're also still leaving that legacy. Yes, of course. Now that goes without saying. Um, right. I mean, some people are just allergic to paying taxes. If you're a Republican in the US, you want to lower the taxes for the rich and happy for the poor. But I think most reasonable people um, are reluctant to pay more tax in South Africa because the money is being wasted, because the, the corruption has eaten so many, much of it, incompetence and uh, so on has eaten so much of it. Um, I read in the Freyvieklat a few weeks ago of the town where the court ordered the town clerk to, um, to provide water. The town doesn't have water for two months mm -hmm. and said if he doesn't fix the water in three weeks, then he is going to be jailed. It's a mm -hmm. bit like Zuma. So yeah. there's that. And of course, it is, it is a huge problem um, because, with, uh, because uh, it makes it much more easier for people to, to also, even the existing tax, to try and avoid paying the tax, not to be tax compliant, because you feel it's not really going to do what it's supposed to do or not as much as it should. And then finally, it would be remiss of us. I mean, you mentioned this um, uh, slightly, uh, but uh, the last question, we just want to ask about the constitutionality and the practicality of the lockdown legislation. This is obviously a heated topic about uh, like among every single South African. And there's a lot of debate about this. And also think that, you know, the anti-judiciary movement might perhaps be stemming and or getting fuel from that as well. What's your opinion on those um, legislations? Yeah, one cannot make a blanket assessment because every right. regulation is different. Um, there, there are two issues. The first one is there was a very interesting practical, but also conceptually uh, uh, important decision that was taken not to announce a state of emergency in terms of the constitution, which allows for the derogation of certain rights, but it had to be approved every, renewed every, uh, Three, uh, after three months and then after every month. Instead, we went the, the way of using the Disaster Management Act. Mm. And so that gives the government less powers. Okay. Um, and then you have to ask each regulation, is this rational? Does the regulations, uh, does the act allow you to make this? And is there some logic here in the sense that there's a link between the regulation and what it is trying to achieve? I think many of the regulations were idiotic. <laughs> uh, hot food at Woolworths, or you can't go and walk for the first three weeks, even in, or and then only until nine. Uh, you know that kind of thing. The uh, tobacco ban, it's it does. I and the Supreme Court of Appeal recently said the same thing. Yeah. Most of the provisions, most of the regulations, however, meet this minimum rationality test which is not the same thing as saying, this is a wise, this is the best regulation, or they couldn't have made much better regulations. Uh, the two things are not the same. Mm. That, yeah, 
I've, I, I do want to say that I feel like there's a delay between how the regulations are being assessed, whether they're rational or not. And obviously the, uh, the, the law takes it, its good time in terms of making sure that it is you know, rational or not, whereas the regulations themselves feel like they're implemented overnight. So there's a complete disconnect there between those two. What do you respond about that? Yes, so there's the, the, the initial problem is firstly that because this is done in terms of the Disaster Management Act, there's not the constitutional requirements for consultation before they are implemented, mm. which it would have been if it was legislation. And then secondly, the courts, obviously, especially if it's going to be, the case is going to be appealed, it takes time. It's yeah. the nature of the court system. And so it, this is to be expected. And when there's a global pandemic, the courts are also going to be a little bit more respectful of the other branch of government because they're going to say, we're not doctors. Yeah. We haven't seen the figures. We're not going to second guess the government, even if we suspect that maybe they're getting it wrong here. So I think that's where we, we are at the moment. On appeal, like with the Supreme Court of Appeal judgment, um, it's time has passed and so, um, they did declare some of the regulations which no longer exist. They declared them in the constitution. Yeah, but it does feel like the damage has been done a bit in that regard. And uh, how the response to that is being handled, I think, is something that South Africans might look to towards how much faith they put in future regulations of the type in similar scenarios. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is a this is government management, and right. so this is democracy. If you think the government. It's not the court's fault. The court, mm. yes, try and fix it, but it's the government's fault if you think yeah. they did well. And the party in government, you you then have to decide, are you going to vote for them? Are you going to vote for another party? Are you going to organize against them and make a street committee for the EFF or the DA? Mm. That's the kind of active citizenship um, that I think is really important um, to take part in, although it can be a schlep and it's hard work, but I think it's important. You know, the things that are most worth are generally hard work, but I think that's a very positive and important message to end on. Uh, we want to thank you so much for talking to us. This has been incredibly insightful. I want to give you a last opportunity to add anything or plug anything you might like to say. Uh, no, I don't want to say anything. Thank you for, for having me uh, on your podcast. Um, it was nice chatting to you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and to our viewers, if you've made it thus far in the video, you most definitely enjoyed it. If you want to share this type of incredibly informative um, discussions uh, that help give people perspectives that can broaden their worldview, please consider liking and sharing this. This not only, not only help the channel, but it also helps the discussion, which the uh, professor said is the most important part that should be had. Um, so, so for that, uh, thank you for watching. This has been Worldview.